Well, hello everyone. I am that Williams guy back after a two-week hiatus. Uh, each of the last two weekends, I have been on the range both Saturday and Sunday, and then I had things in my work schedule. Uh, let's say I worked several evenings this past week, and then was on the road uh, the week before that. It just made it impossible to get an episode recorded. And so I'm rocking along, and here it is Thursday, March the 9th at 8.08 p.m., and I was like, well, I, I got to get an episode in the in the books because I can't do three weeks without putting content out. And so I need to get something recorded. So I sent out today eight invitations for a round robin episode tonight and riding to our rescue. The Lone Ranger <laughs> is Eric Lund. Eric is the only one out of the eight people that I invited uh, that could get here tonight. And I didn't want to reschedule because Eric, Here's why. I don't have a college class this weekend. My class, uh, my winter session class wrapped up today. And I don't have a class, like a range class this weekend. I'm like, I can have an actual full weekend off if I get an episode recorded tonight. So no, we're not rescheduling. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, yes, I, I saw that. And your notice came through coincidentally when I happened to be at the range practicing. And uh, yeah, so I, I may have um, massaged some of the Georgia Motor Vehicle Code to get home in time for this. Uh, but I, I made it and, and, and I knew it was going to be, uh, it was going to be interesting when i sent you the text five minutes before airtime and i'm like is the podcast still going and you're like hopefully <laughs> like, so you, you took the speed suggestions under advisement what you're saying yes, yes i uh i took notice of them i well, can't i can't say i obeyed all of them as a former state trooper had you have stopped someone for speeding and I'm like look trooper I, I have to get home in time for a podcast tonight would you have let them go the morning you know, probably not, right? <laughs> but if I had dropped the uh, the infamous Lee Weems podcast, I might have I might have held some sway. That that might have gotten have gotten you uh, uh, more problems than you would have would have gotten help from. So so under the the old cop stories, when it comes to that, you know, you always get the, you know, what somebody ever said that got out of a ticket. So it was Sunday morning. And I was uh, working up right by the exit, um, the toll road outside of Northern Virginia, which gets you out mm -hmm. to uh, Dulles Airport. Right. And it was 6.30, 6.45, Sunday morning, you know, just getting the coffee, settling in the morning shift. Dude, this dude came screaming through, you know, like 92 and a 55. So I pull him over and I walk up and I'm just like, he hits me right away, like pulled right over, didn't have to run him down, everything. Window was down, license was ready, I rolled up. And before I could even say anything, he's like, look, I know I was speeding. Here's what's happening. Before I even asked, is there a reason? You know, he's like, my mother-in-law is coming to stay with us for the next two weeks. And if I am late to pick her up from the airport, I will never hear the end of it. <laughs> and I said, be careful. There's some more troopers on down the way. Have a nice day. <laughs> Sir, get behind me. I'll get you there in time. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, you know what? That kind of punishment does not fit this crime. 
So I took some judicial notice and used some discretion and kicked him along. Uh, yeah, I think the best one I've ever had was a uh, guy passed me and I'm driving a marked car and the guy like passed me on a double yellow. And I pulled him over and walked up and said, sir, is there a reason you passed the deputy sheriff on a double yellow? And he says, yep, I didn't know you were a deputy sheriff. <laughs> That's an honest answer, sir, if not a good one. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, to all those um, young and upcoming next generation that are taking our spots, you know, my little bit of wisdom for you is when it comes to traffic stops, you can do one of three things, you know, um, obviously cutting them loose. But the two important things are do one or the other, don't do both, right. which is either give them an ass chewing and cut them loose or say nothing and write them the summons but yeah. don't give them an ass chewing and write them the summons that's when you'll get the complaint so do one or the other <laughs> don't do both yep. but uh yeah so uh like we were talking earlier i'm yeah. gonna have to throw out the warning that mm -hmm. that because this was supposed to be a round robin and you have no material <laughs> prepped and me reading that it was going to be a round robin, realizing that as long as I can duck out from not going first, I don't need any material prepped. And now it's just you and I, there's is going to be some serious nonsensical ramblings going on in this show. So just a warning, any of your viewers want to bail now, now's the time to pull the eject lever because I have no idea where this is, where it's going to go and what we're going to talk about. So it's going to be like every other conversation you and I have. <laughs> it's going to be like every time I'm on the stand. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about. Your Honor. Oh man. My, my favorite thing I ever said on the stand was ongoing divorce case with custody disputes and keep winding back up in, in front of the, the judge who issued the custody order over contempt charges and for for the audience if if you enter into a civil agreement or divorces uh, divorce settlements and stuff or a civil agreement if one party doesn't abide by the civil agreement then the other party's remedy is to bring them back in front of the judge and try to get them held in contempt and in this case, I was in my third courthouse in the third county uh, because, you know, the, it would be wherever the issuing judge was in the circuit. And the whole thing started in a circuit in which I don't work. And so I'm in my third courthouse on this case. And the male half of this, this ongoing saga is representing himself. And so I'm on the stand. And finally, he says, are you biased to get, are you prejudiced against me? I said, sir, I was not at the beginning, but at this point it's safe to say that I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and the judge uh, tried to maintain, you know, tried to curtain her, her laughter. <laughs> and uh, uh, he wound up in jail uh, for contempt after that hearing. So I'll tell you my best judge story. So I had been working for about three months. And, uh, had a guy come through high speed, you know, because back then, you know, 90s, um, it was still only 55 miles an hour in Northern Virginia. Yeah. <clears throat> so we went to, you know, went to court 
you know, my court date. And at the time, he was now a substitute judge, Judge Hurst. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, he's uh, he had already done his time and was retired, and they would bring him back. Yeah. It's just one of those Southern character type judges you always hear stories about. Well, here's mm-hmm. a story. So this guy came through at like 88. So he gets up there and uh, pleads not guilty. So, of course, uh, all the pleas go first. Everyone does that. And at the end of the court or the end of the day after lunch is when they hear all the people that want to plead not guilty and go to trial. So it gets up there and I, I give my spiel, you know, as in my uniform, to swing my badge of authority, running radar, all this stuff, come through high rate of speed, over that with a high tone, identify, you know, all the testimony. So the judge asks this guy, well, you know, what's your side of the story? And uh, so he starts talking about how he's got allergies and that while he was driving, um, he had to sneeze and he got into a sneezing fit. And the act of him sneezing convulsed his body and forced him to floor the accelerator at the moment he came through the beam, which is why he was going idiot. Now, Judge Hurst was those type of judge, like when you were very talkative. So like when you were telling your story, he was adding comment the whole time. Mm-hmm. So he'd be like, oh, really? Absolutely. Uh, yes, yes. Done that many times myself, sir. You know, and while this is going on. So he's like, oh, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. And, you know, all this. And, he, you know, anything else you'd like to add? And the guy's like, no, no, that's what happens. And he, he thinks for a second. He goes, well, sir, you know, I'm sorry to say that I do, in fact, find you guilty of speeding. And it's the judgment of this court that you be sentenced, that you be hung by the neck until you are dead. And he banged the gavel in the entire courtroom. It was like a needle across the record. And everybody stopped. Nobody like was breathing. I mean, there's 100 people in this courtroom. Yeah. And everybody had the same look on their face like, did he really just sentence that dude to hanging? I mean, and so every, I mean, in this guy's eyes, went as big and as white as any cartoon character you could just the whites of his pupils just shrank to nothing when he was processing that he was going to get hung and of course it felt like it was 30 seconds of silence when it was probably just like two or three and then out of the blue he breaks the silence and looks down his clerk and he's like i can't do that can i and she's like no your honor and he goes all right hundred dollars next and i was just like Oh yeah, this is this is how it's going to be, and uh, yeah, and that yeah. guy like had to be helped out of the courtroom by the deputy. Like he couldn't he couldn't stand straight. He was just yeah. so shaken by by escaping death by hanging for speeding. <laughs> the next person was up, Your Honor. Can I change my plea to guilty? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, I always well, remember that one. He was also the one that. Um, so he was in the Navy and he was in the Navy in World War II. So on December 7th, he comes in and he sits down and he goes, everyone in the, you know, police all rise, judge comes in, he sits down and he goes, goes, I want to take a poll. He goes, everyone in this courtroom that is, is running a, that owns a Japanese vehicle, a Nissan, a Honda, anything like this, raise your hands. And so like, 25% of the people in the courtroom raised their hands. He goes, all right, now leave your hands raised. And he said, everyone else, your cases are dismissed. 
and all he prosecuted was Japanese vehicles that day on December 7th because of Pearl Harbor. Uh, I, that might be an equal protection claim, but I just don't know that the Supreme Court's worried about traffic. I cases don't know, but I'll tell you what, none of the people that got their case dismissed complained. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the, the rest of the story on that ongoing saga was the, the original judge passed away. And so the judge that took his place inherited those cases. And um, basically the, the male half of that incident just basically said, I'm not going to take a menial job to make child support payments. If I can't do, he was a realtor. If I can't sell real estate and everything, then she's just ain't going to get paid the child support. He's like $40,000 behind at this Ooh, point. Yeah. Well, the judge orders him held in contempt until he can come up with some money and has him locked up in the county jail that this whole thing originated in. Well, here, here's a lesson for you for being difficult to deal with, uh, especially in that setting. He petitioned the judge for a weekend out of jail to take care of some personal business and the judge granted it to him. So I'll give you, you can be released Friday at whatever time you got to turn yourself back in Sunday at whatever time. And so the jailers processed his order to release him from the jail while a deputy sat down the road and waited because see in Georgia, if you don't pay your child support, they suspend your driver's license. Oh my God. And so the guy gets processed out of jail. He walked out into the parking lot, gets into his car, pulls out onto the road, starts to drive away. The deputy pulls him over and arrests him for driving on a suspended license, <laughs> takes him back in, and he has to post bond on the suspended license charge uh, so that he could have his weekend out of jail. Oh, how, how is that not entrapment? I mean, talk about spiking the football. Come on. He could have had somebody pick him up. <clears throat> yeah no don't disagree but yeah i um uh, that was a little spike in the football on that one when, but, when you uh, when you have created that persona for yourself though yeah you, know. you have been that difficult to deal with in three counties at that point yeah that's what you get all so. right so on our nonsensical <laughs> ramblings here is here's my first one the the, right. the random thought that just popped into my mind all right in honor of yesterday being march 8th which means it was 308 day. Uh-huh. What is your favorite 308 and what would you use it for? Huh. If I could get a quality like back when Remington was still Remington, mm -hmm. uh, it would just be a Remington 700. And um, would use it for all the things I'd use a rifle for, mm -hmm. basically. Um, you know, I, I shoot pigs now when I get a chance to go with a Ruger American Ranch and 6.5 Grendel, I'd just do that with the 308. Yeah. And if I ever get a chance to go out west with a famous long range shooting instructor and shoot like pigs <laughs> at like 400 yards and stuff, that's probably what I would take it for. Yeah, that would be a good option. That would be a good option. Um, let me see. I Now, I am biased, but I am still a huge fan of the, uh, the SCAR 17 and 308 um when i used it competitively on the circuit i was somewhere 12 13 000 documented rounds without a malfunction okay and that was 
everything under the sun, including some some cheap Wolf 308, just to see if it would cycle it. And still inch and a half accurate. And uh, yeah, it. Uh, uh, and uh, man, I. That's kind of I was fortunate that I I, I went with it and I uh, actually uh, SBR'd it once my competitive career left over and so now it, sports kind of like you see in all the oh the special operations community run the short barrels and it runs suppressed and it's just uh, man it's a it's a beautiful setup and I tell you um, there's something about throwing a 308 across a room that really makes you feel like a man <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I don't have much experience with the 308 and I have no experience with the scar. Yeah. Well, fortunately, you know, somebody that can rectify that situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll bring my scar. You bring the 365. We'll, uh, we'll trade All and right. play a little show and tell. Um, right. Yeah. You know, um, interesting. Cause uh, so that'll dovetail into um, like, I, I certainly think that, for certain departments, yours included, that has a decent amount of rural county to patrol, having a larger caliber than a 5.56. Now, of course, we can go down the road of what that means or what those options are. I think would be a very useful tool because I know conversations with you and I have come up in the past about. Um, running intermediate carbine classes you know uh -huh. you know the rifle's the rage right now and it has been for a while and it will continue to be the m4s and you know versions of a 556 but even when we do these classes you know i mean they're 50 yard classes yeah. you know maybe 100 yards if we get lucky um but you start thinking about all these rural counties and if something goes wrong on some piece of property and you've got two or 300 yards from the guy's front driveway to the house and nothing but, but, you know, wheat field between you and him, all of a sudden that five, five, six doesn't seem to have as much potency when a guy's behind cover, when he's barricaded and you've got 300 yards of space between you and we're having a patrol or a sergeant or a patrol sergeant having some type of scout rifle setup or some type of semi-auto rifle, you know, that they can bring a little bit more firepower or a little bit more punch to that situation because of the distance involved. I think that might be, might be something um, for, for the more rural counties, you know, or people that have rural territory. Yeah. But the, the thing is there too, though, is you're going to have to have training environments where they can actually get out and stretch the rifle and test those capabilities. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've got people who have never fired their patrol car being further than 50 yards because 50 yards is the range we have available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reality of that. You know, it's, it's the, that mentality of, well, I, we will never be in a situation where we're going to need to use use of force more than 50 yards. So your bean counters justify that by saying, you know, things like that. And I'll just take them in any Walmart parking lot. I guarantee you, you find a hundred yards across a Walmart parking lot, plus a lot more. But uh, yeah, and that's always going to be your your downside with that is, is finding the right facilities to conduct that type of training at. But yeah. just, just to talk of, you know, under the 308 banner, 
you know, I, I think it has, has still has application in those types or six, five Cree more, or, you know, you know, something, some version of that, you know, for, for necessity out there. Does it, does every patrol officer need to be running 308 out in the County? You know, probably not, but it's probably wouldn't be a bad idea if a, a shift supervisor had one in his trunk for those occasions that might crop up where distance now becomes a serious factor, you know, but, uh, which platform would you suggest for that? Would it be a SCAR? No, no, because at that point, I don't see that as a, a semi-auto problem. I, I see that more as your bolt guns. I mean, they're, yeah. the training goes along with it. There's plenty of high-quality, affordably priced. I mean, you can pick up probably three high-quality bolt guns, or at the very least, two high-quality 308 bolt guns with optics for the price of one SCAR. Um, and it's capable, but just for that role, that that intermediate interdiction role, that set up a perimeter, wait for something, or you have a perimeter and somebody is engaging you at two or three hundred yards, and and you've set up a perimeter, but you need some type of capability to uh, to fight back more effectively than, than a five five six. So something like that, yeah, I would I would think that would be right down the lines of, you know, Cooper scout rifle type concept, you know, the Rugers, um, you know, any, anything that offers a detachable box magazine, you know, 18 inch barrel, some version of that with a, with a nice two to 10 type scope. You know, I'm going to argue surplus M1 grand for that. Well, so the problem with the M1 grands, right. And there uh, is no problem with the M1, sir. (laughs) I, I stand corrected. I agree with you on that. Um, and assuming this is uh, not a uh, not a uh, a joke back to my last comment the last time I was about clearing my house with an M1 Grand, because a lot of Germans learned that it's still quite maneuverable in tight quarters. <laughs> but um, now the problem with that is at 30 out six capability. The problem is it's difficult to scope it. Um, because of the ejection pattern, it has to be an off center line scope and the accuracy, it's the same issue that you have with the M1As, which are just the, the next generation of an M1 Grand was they take a lot of work to get them accurized to the level that you would want for some, for a role like that. Well, if you have read your Stephen Hunter novels, you know that it is 100% possible. Mm. No, absolutely it is. <laughs> I'm saying now when you look at the resources and the money that you put in to getting that platform to 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 perform in that window. Yeah. Now you say, well, maybe we just go and get the scar then, you know, or or some other version. What about that Springfield SOCOM 16? Did that you know that I remember oh when it was God. when it was you released, but it never you it never did- you did this intentionally because God, you talk about just poking the Viking. Oh, I think the, the M1A SOCOM is the biggest fraud that has ever been perpetrated on the firearms industry. Right. 
this whole idea of bring enough gun and all this and this idea oh my god the problem with the m1a socom right is that they cut the barrel right to the edge of the gas piston and the gas block so the only way they have no dwell time in that gun and for those you know the people maybe asking what dwell time is you know when you have a gas port and then there has to be a certain amount of barrel after the gas port before the bullet exits so that while the bullets pass the gas port all the gas can pressurize the gas system and cycle the action well when you take the barrel and you cut it right down next to the gas port you don't have any dwell time so now how do you overcome that because the the fraction of a second that the gas is starting to go into the port to cycle the gun is also the fraction of a second that the bullet has cleared the muzzle and all the gases are starting to go. So Springfield basically put a muzzle brake on it. But the way that it's designed, it's also like a booster, similar to if you look at any of the, uh, the AK-74 Krinkovs, whether it's the 545 or the 762 version. And at the end, they have this like little bulbous tank with this little flash suppressor. Well, that's a booster because it has the same issue, right? There's no dwell time. So they create this little chamber that creates enough back pressure to cycle the gun. So Springfield did the same thing. And so they kind of created this booster with this muzzle brake and these ports. Well, the ports are kind of from 10 o'clock to two o'clock. So now you have a short barrel 308, 16 inches, right? You have a booster so that the gun will even work correctly. And then through the booster and through the amount of recoil you get, you put muzzle ports on the top. So I don't know about you, but if you've ever shot a short barrel 308, you will set things on fire because of the muzzle flash. So Springfield markets this to law enforcement. I kid you not, there are those memes out there where they show the gun go off or something, you know, and then the next screen is they flash to the little mini nuclear cloud going. That nuke cloud appears every single time you shoot that M1A SOCOM under anything but high noon sun. And I ran a low light class where a guy came through with that rifle. I kid you not, it was a nuclear mushroom cloud that lit up the whole side of the range every time he shot. And I was so blinded by the flash of him shooting that I grabbed onto his belt buckle to make sure that as he walked through the shoot house, I was with him because I was done. I could not see. I don't know how he could see. And the concussion and the muzzle blast from this thing absolutely blinded the user, let alone everything. It's just... And then to turn around and market this at law enforcement, it was just like, oh my God, I mean, this is a fraud. Have, have you people not 
ever tried to even shoot this rifle in those environments, let alone shoot it in a dark hallway inside a house. It's just, it's absolutely the worst rifle. But it's for, cool though. For that application. Oh, absolutely. I'm with you, dude. I'm with you. Right. Now, if they came out there and, you know, they changed their marketing campaign to the M1A, first of all, they name it SOCOM, you know, mm -hmm. this and that. They come out there and be like, you know, instead of bring enough gun, you know, your law enforcement solution and all those other slogans that they, when they first came out, they were, they were pushing. If they came out and be like, M1A SOCOM, rattle your friend's fillings. You know, <laughs> it'd be like, okay, that was pretty cool. You know, yeah, yeah. you can go out there and do all this. But I mean, it's a factory loudener. <laughs> and it excels at what it does, you know? And so the concept that you're going to push this as give it, first of all, the name of SOCOM, like somehow special operations is using this yeah. and then push it on the law enforcement market was just, you obviously have nobody in your employee that has any idea what law enforcement does, because this is about as unsuitable as it gets. Like, I equate this to police departments getting surplus MG42s for concerts and festival riot control. That's how poor of a decision this is. But yes, so. Well, the thing is that a Marlin 1895 guy gun at 45.70 would accomplish that test just as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I'm a big fan of throwing cinder blocks at people. <laughs> 4570 does it now. Uh, okay, so since we're on this. If it's good enough for the American bison, it's good enough to solve our problem. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, now, what I actually think would make a great patrol rifle. Um, it'll never happen. But what would make a, a very good high-quality patrol rifle, I think, uh, really are AK-47s or their modern derivatives of such. Mm -hmm. um, they're compact. They're lightweight. They're ultra-reliable. You know, and when you talk about cops who put those things in the racks and when you pull them out for inspection, French fries and donut crumbs and everything fall out of the action um, – Good modern ones with good modern ammunition are certainly accurate enough inside 100 yards and most likely in 50. They offer you increased performance of a 30 cal bullet. They offer increased performance against barrier penetration. They're simple to maintain and, 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 and run. Um, but the, the problem is always going to be. Or even the modern ones, you have the ability to run you know, red dot sites and lights and equip them. And, uh, and on some of them, the cost is right, but you will never be able to overcome the image of an AK as a terrorist gun. Right. And so when I run AK operator classes or when I see these guys and, uh, you know, and they have their whole, um, SHTF stuff and, you know, this and that, and, you know, and they want to run without AKs. I'm like, guys, I'm telling you now from this perspective, I don't care how 100% in the right you are and all of the reasons and effectiveness that this is a good choice because most likely I'll agree with you. Mm -hmm. But the problem is 
when me, the police officer, rolls up on a scene in the middle of some type of active shooter gunfight, and you have an AK in your hand, AK equals terrorist, and you're getting shot first, no questions asked. Now, you don't have to like it, and you can, oh, that's not right, and this and that, and training, blah, blah, blah. Can't, not going to disagree with you. But I'm telling you, you jump out and you helping a school shooting. I mean, you're doing the most righteous thing you can, preventing, you know, a school bus being, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. But you do it with an AK and the first guy on scene that's got a badge is going to shoot you because AK equals bad guy. Or shoot, always, at, shoot at you. Well, that's fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> but AK equals bad guy. Yeah. And until that image changes, and I don't think it ever will, that that becomes a huge problem and consequence for people that want to use those in those roles. And uh, unfortunately, that's um, that's just the way it is, you know. And and I, I wish it wasn't that way because I think on certain situations, a very capable platform and offers a lot of a lot of benefits. But the stigmatism of what it is, that image, what it means, is is going to cause you more problems i think than all those other all those other benefits of running one you know for the role that you described initially at, at the beginning of this nonsensical rambling uh, i really think that ruger american ranch and six five rental would fit the bill absolutely absolutely the, the uh, ruger the ruger ranch series um not a big fan of 223 i'm not a big fan of 556 or 223 bolt guns yeah i i think I think they're worthless, right? Um, for anything, even potentially um, anything, even borderline hunting, you know. So if you, um, you know, you want to go out and shoot prairie dogs, take a two, two, three. All right, good. I'll take my DMR semi-auto two, two, three, and I'll engage them and be just as successful as you are. Right, because we're we're at that we're at that time now with the technology and, and the build quality of of highly accurate five five six semi auto platforms. So I think a two two three bolt gun is worthless. But the three hundred blackout, the six five Grendel, um, with the detachable mags and that Ruger platform, the accuracy, um, the value you get out of that platform, mm -hmm. I think that's that's absolutely a a, a viable solution. Well, the Absolutely. hog population in Northeast Georgia does not like it one bit at all. No, no, I um, and and it only the only reason, um, as I know we've batted around before, and the only reason I don't have a six five Grendel, Ruger American, is I just can't get around the fact that I have AR fifteens or semi autos in six five Grendel that are are MOA accurate. Yeah. And so when I have a semi-auto platform that's given me all the same performance and then some on top of a bolt gun platform, it's tough for me other than for nostalgia type purposes or pleasure or just enjoy it to, to go with that. You know, so I would rather save the bolt gun for something, the larger caliber, you know, the 6.5 Grendel or some other boutique, you know, caliber or something like that. But uh, yeah, I initially did an AR upper. And six five Grendel, but after I saw the bolt break on yours, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going with a bolt gun." And I sold that upper, 
and it's changed hands two or three times amongst other deputies and it's taken out some deer mm -hmm. but I, I really like that uh i i prefer bolt guns and lever guns to ars it's just me just yeah. a preference preference thing yeah. um and it's compact and handy enough that I've been able to take hog on the run with it. And then I've been able to get in the stand and because I got a one date scope on it and dial the scope up and take them at distance. Mm -hmm. And that's got enough punch to get out there and punch through that shoulder blade on them and do what it needs to do. And I've been pleased with the whole, the whole setup, the, the magazines that I bought, uh, were a little rough at first and it's taking some, some wearing in with the bolt, with the mag dragging across a little bit. Mm -hmm. but uh and everything but i've been really pleased with it no I, I think it's a very capable platform especially now that um i think magpul now is finally coming out with some compatible mm -hmm. stocks for that platform too which will yeah. increase um you know the handling ergonomics i, I think that's an excellent option um yeah, yeah. But, um uh, i heard a rumor that uh you bought a revolver this past week and you were uh, <laughs> just shocked to learn that it didn't come with three magazines I tell you, yes, I, um, um, and if, for all y'all that aren't familiar, I am, uh, I'm a, look at the Pennsylvania fan. guy busting out with a y'all. How about yeah. that? Oh yeah. Y'all and all y'all. I, I understand. And, uh, and technically I'm, I, I now, I think I can claim Southern heritage now because I have lived more of my life in the South than in the North. Um... So I, that may be make me, uh, you know, a damn Yankee, but, uh, no, there's know. a, there's a term and you've got about half of it. Yeah. So I'm, a... <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be tough to push me back across that Northern border for any permanent, uh, permanent time. But, um, uh, yeah. So anyone that knows me or has listened to me before is I am a, a firm believer and a man has got to know his limitations, uh, famous Clint Eastwood line. And, uh, my limitations are, anything and everything having to do with revolvers i don't shoot them well i'm not a big fan of them i see very limited applications and if you if any of your listeners have heard me on a few other podcasts in some way shape or form that has that opinion has come out all right doesn't mean i don't appreciate them it just means i just have very little use for them it's the total um quigley down under at the end of the movie when he 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 smokes those dudes with a revolver and he says i never said i couldn't shoot it i just said i didn't have much use for one so that's kind of me with the revolver you know so um but um i am spending uh more and more time out in the country and in the woods and and in in the areas of the country and out in the deep woods where you are not the apex predator <laughs> <laughs> and normally i uh, i have my my 10 millimeter springfield and uh, i run that with some pretty uh pretty stout loads uh, i've been very happy with the performance it's a, a single stack 1911 i'm a huge fan i can run it strong and aggressively and really there's not too many things on this earth that um are gonna be very happy getting shot in the face seven or eight times with a 10 millimeter right but i recognize that um, occasionally, you know, spices, uh, the variety of life and our varieties of spice of life. And so, uh, I came across a deal and, um, where it comes back to is the second firearm I ever bought for myself. The very first gun I ever bought when I turned 22 was a Glock 17, a gen two. 
Gen 2s had just come out and I picked one up. They were all the rage, you know, had it for a long time. The second thing I bought was a Smith & Wesson 629, 44 Magnum with six and a half inch barrel. And I actually used it to hunt deer in Northern Pennsylvania. And I uh, wasn't very successful with it because it was just iron sights. I didn't do the scope and everything, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. And then of course, just being the, the poor college student, bills came and that got sold and I've always enjoyed it. And the only thing I didn't like about it was I thought the barrel was a little too long. So I was able to um, realize, you know, going through just revolvers and find out that, you know, Smith offers too. So they offer a, a four inch model and a five inch model. And uh, I was looking for something a little bit more powerful to have with me when I was out in the backcountry than the 10 millimeter. And I realized I wanted a 44. And so I kind of was waffling back and forth between the four and the five, you know, the four being easy to carry, you know, on your hip and the five, a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier, but you get a little more velocity, a little more performance. You can, you know, the fours, I kind of think were more of a purely defensive where a five I felt like I could actually go and use it to hunt with just because of the extra barrel length the extra sight radius the extra performance you get well lo and behold just uh right place right time right price and uh yes I picked up a 629 and uh I went to go pick it up and uh, when I opened up the box I really had about a two or three second moment of panic and a little a little bit of anger that I'm like, what, where, where, where's my damn magazines? And I mean, literally for about three seconds, my mind went blank, like where the F are my magazines, dude? And then I realized, oh, this is a revolver. And uh, yeah, so I'm not ashamed to admit that because I admit my fault and yeah, I'm not, yeah. So anyways, once I quickly, uh, quickly recomposed myself that this guy was not in fact trying to rip me off by keeping the magazines out of my revolver um i thanked him and uh we went our separate ways and uh yes yeah, so i am now the proud owner of a, a five inch 629 so i'll be loading some ammo for it shortly and uh going out and having a little fun with it have you gotten a carry rig for chip so as part of the deal um i did but it's one of those um Kenai holsters it sits across your chest okay so it, it's kind of like mm -hmm. like the military ones where you yeah. carry like a 45 for pilots or things so it's mm -hmm. the same type of thing where you carry it and it kind of sits at a slight angle across your yeah. chest um and and you know at some point i'll pick up a a, a legitimate holster for it for your hip or something like that but right now that's all i've got and it'll be a while before i get there um as far as um you know getting a traditional you know a good holster for it you know and uh and do some research on that and find a good one but you know obviously it's for me it's too big to even try to think about any type of inside the waistband with that kind of a barrel length so it'll just be a you know an on your hip holster so something that you know, probably leather, something traditional, maybe some Kydex, maybe something. I'm, I'm kind of trying to lean towards the Kydex just because I'm more familiar with it. And I can, I can dial up the retention on the retention screw to what I want and not have to defeat some type of lever thumb break. But I also don't like the idea of the Kydex because as it gets dusty in there, that dust is going to scratch up that revolver and the cylinder. So I, I, I look think at, I know there's, uh, isn't there somebody that does Kydex, but they do like felt lined on the inside? 
Garrett Industries. Okay. If they still make rigs, I believe they used to have a, a suede line Kydex mm -hmm. rig. Yeah. So something like that. Nothing I'm in a, obviously nothing I'm in a hurry for, but uh, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was one of those things where I've been keeping my eye out for a while and the right deal mm -hmm. came along at the right time. And yeah. So I now have it. Yeah. Now, obviously, the, here comes the question of have you gotten the 1894 Marlin and 44 Magnum to go along with it yet? I have not. Uh, I've been uh, looking. Well, I want right? to caution you about something here with that. Okay. Um, I know you hand load. Yes. And so you're going to you're going to find the load that works perfectly with that 629. And once you do that, that load's not going to be the one that works perfectly in your 1894. <laughs> and so then you're going to find the load that works in your 1894 perfectly and it ain't going to work in your 629. And then you're going to be mad and everything. Just stick with. Uh, yeah. Um, actually what I'm looking for is um, I'm a big fan of the, the cowboy version with the uh, octagonal barrels, Yeah. you know, in the flats. I just mm -hmm. something about that. Maybe it's because everything modern is all round barrels. And so you see that and it just, to me, that's an iconic image of the classic old West when they rather than make it round, they, they put the yeah. octagon barrels and the flats and, you know, and so I, I kind of yeah. like that look better, but I, I don't know. Um, you know, um, I've heard that, that the lever guns, um, like somebody was telling me that like you can't run the 300 grain 44 magnums because they're too long and something to do with the lift gate and how it pulls it out they don't feed right and uh and then somebody was telling me like be careful of the 45 long colts because if you use the really semi-wad cutter you know like mm -hmm. keith type bullets they have all those sharp edges and they hook on stuff and they don't feed well unless you use yeah. round nose and then the other guy say oh yeah but run the 4440s because they're bottleneck cartridges around those bullets and they feed like butter i'm like but it's a 4440 it's like a it's like a night or 1870 40 smith and wesson yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh it's yeah so yeah, I don't have much experience with the 1894 and 44 Magnum. Just I've never had one. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't see them come through my lever gun classes that often. I see a, a fair amount of 38, 357, just don't see a lot of 44 Mag. Um, and what I have found in the 38, 357s is that the shape of the bullet uh, has a lot to do with whether or not the bullet will, or the round will feed through mm -hmm. uh, the action on the lever gun. Um, I would presume that's going to be the case with the 44 Magnum as well. But yeah, uh, I, there's not, I don't think there's as much variety as see, you can see in the. I, I appreciate the tactic of having a rifle and a handgun mm -hmm. that ran the same ammunition, especially at that time period in the Old West, yeah. where you might not get into a town to resupply for months and months and months. So that made sense to me. But in modern time, I look at it like, well, if I'm going to pay the price in the weight and effort to carry a rifle, I'm going to carry a rifle, not yeah. a pistol caliber carbine. Yeah. You know, because I don't have, 
I know I have access to a resupply, whether through the mail or driving of the store, and I'm not going to be six months out in the boonies with no ability to resupply. You know, so I understand the logic behind it initially. I just don't think that logic necessarily is um, the advice is as strong or as good of advice it is given modern times right. with the access to resupply and, and things that we have. So, but I'll tell you, um, uh, I'm an idea guy. I always come up with ideas. And I actually hit Remington, the, the custom shop guy, um, right before Remington went under. So um, I think that if you made a lever action gun chamber for a 458 SOCOM, you would have a hell of a setup. Because one, ballistically, it's virtually identical to the old 4570, right? It is about two thirds of the length of a 4570. So in the same length tube, you're probably going to pick up two or three rounds capacity. It's a bottleneck cartridge. So that improves any type of feeding and all of the... 458 or a lot of the 458 hollow points which are highly effective good performance bullets are hollow points and now you don't have to worry about them being in line in the magazine tube and having some type of detonation from the the, the bullet hitting the primer and i think you know with the rebated rim that you could make that work in a modern lever action get modern cartridge performance have better feeding and reliability because of the bottleneck and you know i i think that would be a great idea for trying to modernize you know uh the the, the lever action now i'm sure you know there's somebody that's going to be way smarter than me to jump in the comments and be like well you can't do it because of this i'm like all right well that's fine but you know the way I would have been thinking through it, I would think that that might be a very interesting, you know, you know, commission a custom gunsmith that works on this stuff and be like, hey, you think you could do this in 458 SOCOM and see what happens? Yeah. You know, when I first developed my lever gun doctrine, I did it at a time when a Marlin 336 and 3030 was the only center fire rifle I had. Mm -hmm. And then the other was, you know, in the wake of the Sandy Hook stuff and everything, you just couldn't find black rifles in any gun shop in the in the area. Mm -hmm. But there were there were racks of used lever guns for you know from two hundred on up to like six hundred bucks for a nicer one. Now, you walk into a store and a new lever gun costs more than an entry level AR-15 does. Oh my God! And it's just ridiculous that we've got to that point. I, um. I have been waiting and it's only within the last couple, maybe it was shot this year, but now Marlin under the Ruger banner has finally released the, um, the traditional uh, lever action 4570. So blued wood, the oversized loop, you know, the full magazine tube. Oversized and loops are like staples. They're from the devil. <laughs> and 
they're coming threaded from the factory, which is great, right? Because Hornady makes some subsonic 4570 loads, which I think are going to be killer for being in like a, a deer stand or a deer blind that you might use for archery, but you might have a 25 yard shot with subsonic 4570. Um, but anyway, so I've been waiting for this one, and then there's been a lot of reviews about the the new the new models coming out of Ruger and Marlin, and that the tolerances are tighter and they're really smooth, and everyone's glowing reports. So they finally came out. I was really excited. I've been waiting for it, and I go look. And it's like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Like ah, oh, damn it. Yeah, I taught a a social lever gun class this weekend, and and traditionally I said I've put that into my whole. It's a contract class. And in other words, you got to get 10 of your friends that want to take it and y'all get together and get the money in a date and I'll come teach because the class traditionally just hasn't sold. Uh, but I had a host nearby that was not going to cause me an extra night in the hotel and everything. So we paired it with a one day shotgun and a one day lever gun class, figuring that the shotgun class would sell. And then the lever gun class, if I got enough to make all my travel expenses, fine. And if not, we, we would cancel it. Well, it completely flipped. The lever gun class sold twice what the shotgun class did. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. And, and it just it is it just never happens that way. And so there were a couple of guys that work in gun shops that have had a chance to look at the new Ruger produced 336s. And you know, they're saying, hey, good things. But yeah. the price point is more than what you can get into like a MP sport or something like that yeah yeah and i just don't see people other than traditionalists who want you know well, you know um maybe i don't know if it's because whoever handles that on their marketing team or research team or something yeah. because as soon as marlin folded and remington folded yeah every marlin out there like tripled in price overnight like I see guys selling the old, mm-hmm. the old Marlin 4570s with whatever the guy's proof stamp on the barrel is. JM. 2,000, 2,500, yeah. 2,750. I'm like, you people have lost your mind. They're, these are not collectible items. Well, the, the thing is, is when people all of a sudden they can't get what they want. It's somehow, you know, supply and demand thing. I carried a third generation Smith and Wesson when third generation Smith and Wessons were not a highly sought out pistol. It was my issue duty gun. And now I see on all the gun forms and stuff, people going nuts whenever someone like gets a load of third gen trade-ins. Really? And I'm like, okay, why did you scoff at me 15 years ago when that's what I was forced to carry? You know, it's, it's funny. And the other thing is that Smith hasn't made parts for it since the M&P was introduced. So what are you going to, if you can't find a supply of extractor springs, et cetera. Yeah. It's almost like you have to buy two. So you have a spare one. You can cannibalize to keep one yeah. running. It's kind of yeah. like the Iranians with the F-14s. You know? <laughs> they just keep, <laughs> keep, they're down to like four because they just keep cannibalizing whether they had to keep four in the air. But uh no, you know, and, and maybe it's because we come from a time when we remember mm-hmm. second gen Smiths and third gen Smiths coming out and how much of an improvement they were. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what I always remember about the Smiths shooting them 
was that the double action pull was horrible. I mean, atrocious. But that single action, oh my God, that was a tight reset, like mm. 1911 style quality, hardly any movement, a quick reset. I mean, it was it was almost to the point where you just cranked off that first round just to get it out of the gun so you could get to the single action mode and get to work. I always thought they needed to produce that gun in a single action only with a with a 1911 style thumb safety on it. You know, they kind of like, like that Legion that you got just off camera there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they, um, you know, I, I always felt like they they did right on the 45 side. So when you had like the original 4506s and you had the big five inch barrels, I mean, they were big guns, you know, like you're a Miami Vice fan, you know, yeah, Sonny Crockett had a Bren 10 for a while, but only for like the first season or two, then he rotated to a, a 4506, you know? And I just don't remember Smith and Wesson ever coming out with a good four and a half, five inch. Everything was always there really, really compact, you know, three and mm -hmm. a half inch and all the 30. And then once again, oh my God, is who, uh, you know, I can't even say that because then like your channel will get a strike. Um, <laughs> who was the, and I'm going to do genius that came up with the Smith and Wesson numbering systems. <laughs> a 39, a 4506, a 6906, a 6908, you know, the 3913s, you know, this it, it had to be somebody who was an accountant that that numbers made sense to them. Because it's the same thing like on the revolver side, you know, just all the different models and and just like why was that because now i mean now what do you have you got smith and wesson m and p you know m and p 2.0 you know it just like all that stuff makes sense it's like okay well that's the name of this why why oh my god well the numbering system makes sense if they had stuck with the numbering system and like all the third generations had four digit model numbers and the numbers actually meant something like if it ends in a six it's a stainless steel frame if it is in a three and it's aluminum frame. And then like this, like the third zero, whether it's a 3913 or a 3906 or whatever, that denotes whether it's a double action only or a, a traditional double action, et cetera. But then they come out with this value line, third generation, they give it three digit model numbers. Yeah, like the the 910. Was yeah. That, it was Smith & Wesson, like it was a bargain basement. Like the 915, I think they had. Yeah, yeah. something like that. You know, and the thing was that wouldn't have been bad if that in everything they did with the marketing system, they put that 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 puzzle key to solving what these numbers meant. Like you see a Smith and Wesson, you know, order your favorite Smith and Wesson, you know, first two numbers, this, yeah. you know, caliber, second number, you know, that, you know, and but they protected that information like it was an Enigma decoding machine. It's like nobody knew what those numbers stood for. Well, I, I will say that when I went to the three-day armorer school on the Smith Third Gens, that was in the manual. And so right there's your problem. The three-day yes. armorer school. Where's a the clock? pistol should yeah. not have a three-day armorer school. 
to which to is get why I wrote the proposal to go to Glocks when I got back <laughs> from it. Um, not only that, you had to buy a toolkit that was a hundred and something bucks. Oh man! And then I ended up buying an extra piece because the they had a you had to hand file, hand fit the extractors to each individual gun, and you had a go no go gauge. And like there's this little pad on the extractor, you'd have to take a little a little bit off of it, a little bit off of it, a little bit off of it, put it in the pistol, go with the gate, go no go, go no go, go yeah, all right, I got to take a little bit more off, and you keep going, and then one file stroke too many, throw that one out, start on a new. Oh one. yeah, no, I remember. Yeah. So when I came through with the state, and uh, when we graduated, well, I started in '93 and we got out in '94. Um, the class before us was the last class to get the 10 millimeters. Uh -huh. Now we didn't have the 1006, we had the 1076. Frame mounted decocker. The frame mounted decocker, right? Because the FBI had like the 1066, which I, I think it had the traditional safety. You know, yeah. I think the seven to six. But, uh, you know, guys were telling me that it was totally random like the fire instructors at the time be like yeah we've been online and like half the guys on their line never had a trouble with their with their 10 millimeters the smiths you know they they ran fine the other 10 guys on the line they couldn't get through a magazine it was just totaling so then they actually complain you know obviously to smith and wesson and smith and wesson's trying to you know because we piggybacked off the fbi contract they sent down armors and they basically sent armors to every division with Dremels to do throat and polish jobs to get them to run. And that fixed some of them, but it didn't fix yeah. all of them. And so then mine was actually, I think, the first class that we got issued the uh, SIG 228s and 9mm was, was that. And, and then I think to this day, the state is still running SIGs. We haven't left SIGs since then. All right. So I went through the academy with a Smith 4006. Okay. And so everybody at my agency had had those. Um, one of the other agencies that used the same academy, they had their officers were going through with Smith 4006s, but the agency was also in the initial phases of purchasing Glocks as an authorized uh, substitute. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, a now defunct ammo company had the state contract to provide practice ammo for the training center and they were loading this this ammo with hollow points but they were polishing it all with corn cobs after you know the whole manufacturing process and little bits of corn, oh, cob, the corn were getting, cob were getting in the hollow point and yeah. then they would come out of the hollow point during recall as you were firing and a female officer from the county police uh, that was issuing them at that time uh, her gun completely locked up from one of these corn cobs to the mm. fact you could even you could even unload the gun it was so locked up and so one of their their staff shows up one day and hands her a glock and like leaves with her smith and so she was she was the only one in her academy class that uh, had the glock from that agency mm. and you know it's like i'm looking around and said do i really want this gun that got locked up because all the glocks in the class ran fine right and we stay yeah. with the Glock, excuse me, stay with the Smith. 
probably carried that one for another couple of years. And then the armor took it, did a complete rebuild on it. Like all the new springs, everything, mm-hmm. put a new extractor and everything in it for me. And then we traded and got new Smith 406s because the yeah. chief said we needed new guns, but he wasn't going to buy new gear in addition to new guns. And then later we had those guns in service for like three years. And uh, then I, I did the spearhead of the transition to Glocks mm-hmm. after I came back from the Smith and Wesson Armor School. Yeah, my I I had nothing but SIGs with all my agencies until around 2015-ish. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the Glock 19. Yeah. So we had the I started on the the nine millimeter two two eights. Then we went to the nine millimeter two two nines. Um no, you I didn't Glock thirty three when I met you though. I I had one, yeah. Okay. Um so we had a, I take that back. So we started with the 228s and nine millimeter. Then we were one of the first agencies to jump to 357 SIG because SIG wanted to promote the round and they needed big agencies for their promotional. So they offered to swap our agency out for free. And we took it because I mean, the 357 SIG, it's got a lot of haters, but I'm a huge fan. I mean, that thing yeah. performs. I've seen it perform. I mean, yeah. that's a whole nother episode. But yeah. so we ended up with 229 SIGs and 357 SIG. Um, and I had that through the rest of my career. And then when I came on with my new agency, we had the choice of a 226 or a 229. Well, the 226 has always just fit my hand better. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I went to a 226 357 SIG uh, for a duty gun. And I had that all the way through until I went to the Glock. But you're talking about, yes, off duty, I carried uh, for personal, I carried a Glock 32, okay. which is a 19 size, yeah. but in 357 SIG because my agency was issuing the ammo. Yeah. And that, and it was, it's similar to your experience with the, uh, the P10C that you find the compacts shoot and track a little faster than the full length. Absolutely the case on that Glock 32. I could hammer with that mid-size 357 SIG. And it had a lot of bark. I mean, concussion blast. But man, that thing was smooth to shoot. And I could really, I could really run that gun. And I could run it stronger and faster than I could the Glock 31, which was you know, the full size 357 SIG. And the only reason I gave that up was when we went to uh, the Glock 19s, we, as part of going to the nine, we traded all of our 357 SIG out of our inventories and swapped it for nine. So all of a sudden I had no more access to other no people's OPA. ammo. Yeah, <laughs> no, other people's ammo. And uh, yeah, and so, and of course at that time, you know, SIG's always a very expensive round. and. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time, that one went away because it just, I, um, I couldn't supply it anymore and practice with it to the level that I wanted to. But I loved that gun. Loved that, that compact 357 SIG. You know, when I was shooting GSSF regularly and somewhat IDPA, uh, I did an experiment where I took the same trigger group and swapped it into a 34, shot a bunch of scored courses with it then swapped it into a 17 shot a bunch of scored courses with it and then shopped it into a 19 and then i took it and repeated that in a couple of matches 
and I shot the 17 better than the 34 and the 19 better than the 17. And so I got rid of the 34 and I kept eventually all the 17s, but one, I've kept one that I have a sentimental attachment to. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the 19, just I like the recoil impulse better. And, yeah. you know, and all these people were like, well, I want a 17 slide on a 19 or she's me a, a 17 slide on a 19 grip frame. Like, no, I want the 19 slide on everything. <laughs> and then finally the Glock 45 came out and it's like, I've been trying to tell you guys yeah yeah no and uh we kind of had that with the fn when the fns came out it was a full size essentially it was a Mm -hmm. glock 17 frame with a 19 slide yeah and i still have one of those that is kind of you know that that's that kind of gun like if i end up leaving a gun in the truck which i very rarely do but it's that one like uh, you know, it's a first gen model. They don't make them anymore. If if some if, if my truck caught fire and the pistol melted, it really wouldn't break my heart. You know, yeah. you know, it's a you know, I pull it out of the bag. It's got a spot of rust on it. You know, I kind of lick it, wipe it <laughs> off. I'm like, eh, whatever. You know, cover it, cover it with a sharpie. <laughs> yes, uh, believe me, I have, I have, I've, I've done the black sharpie thing on the sights because a little bit of rust on the corners. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it shoots marvelous. Love yeah. it love how it shoots full size yeah it's the same same concept as that that 40 that glock 45 well just before we started recording you uttered some blasphemy (laughs) and we have to touch on that before before we're out of here tonight oh you you actually like said this 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 makes me feel better than my cz p10 that can't be true it can't be true yeah so um um I owe all of my my P10CZ um, love affair to you, because um, after trying the compact and how more as as much as I was impressed with the CZ P10 series um, with the triggers from the factory, I was more impressed with the ergonomics uh-huh. of because even though I'm a big guy and I have big hands, I have short fingers. Yeah. Like, for example, your traditional CZ-75s, I can't run them because my thumb's not short enough or is not long enough to reliably take off yeah. the safety. So, but I've always, like, I, for years, I had a uh, an SP-01 that I pulled off a prize table. But I got the decocker model. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a DB or something like that. Yeah. And shot it. And I love, I love, I mean, the CZ's great. I mean, that's going to lead us into the new Dan Wesson, the, the yeah. DX or whatever that is at some point. Um, but I always liked it. So what I was more impressed with was the grip and the ergonomics of the P10. And and then when I got a chance to take the F model, which is the full size, yeah. and saw that even with a full size grip, there was still enough room that I never had to worry about the bottom of my hand getting pinched on reloads because the bottom of my hands at the bottom of the grip, just the circumference, how it fit the trigger, then shooting it, you know, seeing the reliability, seeing the accuracy. I mean, it just, yeah. I mean, I, I still to this day, um, if I had to rank polymer nine millimeter pistols, the M and P's Glocks, Walther's Canics, right now with my experience shooting all of them and having shot all of them the the p10f is is number one on my list right now but i'll say this it is 
because, and even before I was in law enforcement, when I would go to the range with my dad and he would take me shooting, his duty gun at that time, among many different, was a 226 and 9mm, the old ones made in Germany. And so anytime I pick up a 226, it's like your old favorite guitar or whatever, you know, oh. fill in the blank. It, it just, I always feel like I'm coming home. And some of that is I spent 20 years in SIGs as a carry gun, is shooting it, you know, training everything. I had SIGs before I even got into law enforcement. Yeah. So a 226, and now, of course, I really love the Legion series because they did the ergonomic upgrades. They put the really nice checkering on it, really good grip. So the 226, I just I just always come back to that. We've had conversations where, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you slapped a Glock 17 or a 226 down on me, it's like, hey, you got your choice of duty gun? I'm probably grabbing the 226 just because I shoot it better. It feels better. I feel more confident with it. I feel more accurate with it. And uh, so um, sitting in the back of the safe uh, was my Legion 226 single action only, which is just along the lines of what you said with the Smith and Wesson should have made a single action only version of their, you know, 6906s or 5906s. Um, SIG really did a, 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 war, a wonderful job making, making a single action only option. Because now I get all the benefits of a cocked and locked 1911, which I have documented over a million rounds through 1911 style pistols. So I'm intimately comfortable and familiar with a with a manual thumb safety and a single action gun. Added with the improved ergonomics on a SIG, with the accuracy, with now it's just that SIG tight single action trigger. Has the flat trigger very much like the 365s or the, the 320s, I guess, in certain versions. And I took it out today, and even though it doesn't have a red dot sight on it, man, shot like butter, felt confident. I had a really good practice session, you know, connecting all the way out 25, 50 yards, up, you know, just, and I was like, man, as much as I like that, that P10 will still be my favorite of polymer pistols, but yeah, I think next time I show up one of your classes, you might see that SIG in the holster and not that P10. Yeah, the, the funny thing about the P10C for me is, uh, and I do now have a shadow systems, but I, I I was when I was looking at them, I was I was asking people that had the shadow like, So tell me, why pay more for a Glock than I can buy a Glock for? Well, you know, it's got the trigger, it's got the grip, it's got all this other stuff, and it's everything that you would pay to do to a Glock anyways. But but for the same money as a Glock 19, I can buy a P10C. And it's already better than all of that. So if you're going to, if you want a polymer gun, I mean, a polymer pistol, that's much better than a Glock and everything. Well, this goes by the CZ. Yeah. I mean, I, I would call it, or I do call it, um, mm -hmm. I call the, that P10 series. I call them Glock yeah. killers. Yeah. Because if I was a salesman, a law enforcement salesman, and they're like, hey, you work on commission. Your job is to go around, show a polymer pistol to a police department and try to get them to rotate out of a Glock. The only one that I would feel confident about not walking in there at knowing like, hey, I have no prayer of making any money oh. for this department would, would be the, the P10 line. Yeah. And I go in there and be like, because I, 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 think, I think technically 
you know, so when I say Glock killers, I mean, from the features that you get, I think ergonomics are just night and day. I think the triggers are better. I think they compare in accuracy and I think they compare in reliability. And, uh, I like the fact that the magazines are metal versus polymer. They drop free, they less friction loading, um, when you're doing reloads and tack loads and they lock in and it just, yeah, I, I, I think it's got a lot going for it. And, um, I think, I think if CZ wants to, I think they can really make an aggressive play for some of Glock's footprint in the law, law enforcement market in the country. If they're, if that's something in their, you know, in their strategic marketing plan, I think they have a real opportunity to do that, but if you don't give me that, or that's not an option, be like, hey, here's an M&P, or here's a, a Canic, or here's this. I'd be like, yeah, no, man, I'm going to go greet people at Walmart. I'll make money that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, I know all the shadow system guys are screaming foundation series now. Well, this, all of that, my experience with the shadow was before the foundation system series was released. I do have a 920 combat which doesn't have the stupid debris channels cut into the slide mm -hmm. and uh, my old man curmudgeon coming out again. No, I'm it's, with you. It's late. It's nine 30 on a, on a weeknight. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only thing I really like about the shadow systems is the mounting system for the optic. Yeah. Uh, it's just, and the, uh, that's the reason I gave one a try. Um, there's some question with the reliability of the guns. So, and that's, and this is be something that I'll follow up with you on because yeah. you, you have a, a, a greater depth of knowledge about this is SIG offers factory slides now, replacement slides for the 226s that are milled for the sites, right? Mm -hmm. But I've got to do the research and find in, find out how are they milling them? What plates do you have to use? Because at some point in the future, if I decide I want to run a dot on this on this 226 Legion I'm either going to have to buy a new slide or send this slide out and have it milled yeah the only hesitation about getting it milled is they put that Legion logo on the top of the slide right by the rear sight so if I mill I'm basically milling that out yeah and I kind of like the idea of having two slides that I could bounce back and forth between a dot and a regular iron sight so chances are I'll, I'll pick it up. But if I end up deciding to go the mill route, yeah. I'll do some work and come back to you for a recommendation on, Hey, is this, is this worth it? Is this, is this type of mounting system solid or is this, cause I know we've, we've gone back and forth. Uh, you said like you wouldn't take a, a Glock MOS because of the mounting system. And as I understand it, they've had some problems with plates and, and mounting and screws. I will. I'm, not a fan of adapter plates at all uh give me direct milled which kills you know coming from the factory that gives you certain limited options uh if it was private citizen gun i just have it milled for an acro mm -hmm. and put an acro on it you, you know buy another slide yeah. have it milled for an acro now, i think sig's footprint is they go with the delta point pro footprint i think that would that would make sense because I think Sig yeah. and Leupold have a pretty good market relationship between their two companies. Yeah. Um, and that was but, with the military uh, contracting and stuff as well. Uh, yeah. I don't know what other stuff 
uh, fit on it. I do have one of the new 365 carries, which is the macro without the velocity reducer in it. And I'm still waiting for a Holosun EPS carry, which will mount without uh, an adapter plate. And I did, finally, me... I did finally go shoot the pistol. Yeah, you got to let me know next time you're going to be out there because uh, yeah. I I am holding off on the Glock 48 yeah. only until I get the 365 because they're really, for me, they're the only two comparable sizes. Um, I mean, there's always the P10C, but I kind of feel like those are are just like one size smaller than a, than a P10C. You know, yeah. and for that for that retirement, that concealed carry, that summer carry, you know. I have the Glock 48 specifically to have a 10 round gun for when I travel for just in case right. I cross into a jurisdiction, which I allegedly possibly have done twice. <laughs> uh, a jurisdiction that has a magazine capacity limit and also stuff I'm carrying the 10 round gun, then I'm yeah. fine. Yeah, and the thing is, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead and finish the 365 macro or carry that whole grip module is basically carrying the same size gun as a 48, but you get 18 rounds in it. Right. In factory max. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll tell you the one thing I do like about that is I've shot the 48 and it's a Glock, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ergonomics of it, it's a Glock, but having, I've held the 365s, and it's the same comparison with like the CZs. Mm -hmm. So the ergonomics and the cuts, the 365 just feels so much better in my hand ergonomically that I'm willing to hold off on the 48 because I want to see how this feels and, and see what the actual shootability of it is. And if this thing shoots, you know, anywhere near what a 48 does, as far as recoil and tracking and, you know, and all the, the yeah. performance um, measurements of, of, of the, uh, the gun when you're actually shooting it, then I'm going to go the 365 route, but I don't want to do that until I've had a chance. So, yeah. so the next time you uh, you're out, let me know. <laughs> I'll, I'll run out there and yeah. I'll throw a scar in the truck. <laughs> all right. It just so happens Tuesday. <laughs> next Tuesday. All right. Yeah, I might be able to make that work. All right, I'll get back uh, to you. I'll get you with you offline on that one. Yeah. But um, All right. Well, we've been going about an hour and a half. Uh, what it? kind of closing thoughts you got? Closing thought. Okay. How about this for closing thought? Uh-huh. Things that you wish the industry would make. So if anyone from the industry is listening and you can come up with some type of wish list of, of something that's not available but you wish they would make it all right drop it now uh easy 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 stop putting 14 inch length of pull stocks on rifles and <laughs> on, shotguns. on shotguns yes yeah make it 12 and a half 12 and three quarters and then have spacers for people that need to go out to a longer stock yes. if they need you to. do it with rifles why wouldn't you do it with a shotgun yeah but like you know you you were talking to him about that henry nine millimeter uh yeah the homesteader homesteader like thing it's got a 14 inch length to pull stock on it <laughs> yes yeah i can take the ruger oh, PC look who's look who's saying hi uh, slash is here i can take yeah. the ruger pc9 which comes with a 12 and a half inch stock on it and has 
spacers in it if you need to go longer and do the exact same thing that 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 uh, henry is doing so why don't i just do the ruger right um and god bless ruger for coming out with you know the 336s and 3030 which is you know it made jesus smile um but they you know they've got those long stocks on them put a 12 and a half total three quarter 13 inch length of, not 14 not 14 and i'll tell you i am not a 3030 fan yeah but I'm a huge 35 Remington fan. <laughs> so mm. I have to get, before I can take your, your social lever gun, uh. I have to get my lever gun from a, <laughs> a retired employee from my department who's a new employee for your department and uh, who's been bo bogarting that thing for over the last two years. So yeah, He had CPR and rap training today. Oh, so, okay. Uh, yeah, I got. Oh, so he's back from his vacation. Yes, he's back. Uh, yeah, from his, he, it, worked, got, he worked. He worked. He's a typical federal employee. Worked two weeks and needed a vacation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, I got to reach out for him. So maybe I'll hit him up tomorrow. But uh, yeah. all right. So wish list. You ready? Yeah. So, in my quest for revolvers, I love. I think. A four-inch 586 is just a beautiful revolver. The full log, the four-inch barrel, the classic blue, because everything, you know, I say everything, but a lot of Smith & Wesson stuff now is the stainless. Yeah. Um, when they did that nice high polish, just beautiful, beautiful setup, right? Now, I'm not up on my frames, but is that an end frame? That's an L frame. So the end frame, what's, what's the 629? End frame. All right, so the L frame is like the midsize, or you, or she said it was an N frame. Yeah, K uh, five eighty six is an L frame. K okay. and L frames are both considered midsize, and okay. the N is considered large size. So here's what I want. Mm -hmm. I want Smith and Wesson because I don't. I, I just the way ammo is. I want to get a revolver so I can go to a revolver class and just mm -hmm. personal develop as an instructor, yeah. get to the point where I know what I don't know about revolvers, you know, things like that, build my knowledge, yeah. get a little practice, but I don't want to suck up a new caliber, yeah. even 38, 357. So what I well, want. He gave me all your 38 ammo. So right. Know, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so what I want, here's my wish list is I want Smith and Wesson to do a 610 10 millimeter right but i want them to do it in blue and i want them to do it on the 58 or the end frame the not frame. the l frame the l frame or the l frame not the end. yeah whatever the mid-size frame is because right it's now the they offer the 610 but it's on the same size frame as the 629 which is massive for a 10 millimeter right yeah and what in the hell is this three and seven eighths inch barrel <laughs> just give me a legit four four and a half inch barrel give me a blue gun make it a 10 millimeter on the mid-size frame because when i go and i pick up a 586 i'm like okay yeah this is good i can trigger yeah. pulls my short fingers everything's works i'd like yeah. it and then i go and pick up a 610 and it's on the huge frame and i'm like this is stupid <laughs> so smith and wesson make a mid-frame 10 millimeter true four four and a quarter inch barrel and make it that beautiful blue that you know how to do to distinguish it from the other 610 
in the other frame and stainless. So that would be my wish. You know, Smith for just a minute there made on the L frame. Uh, and I want to say they, it was the model number was a 696 in 40 Smith and Wesson. And so they, they obviously they can fit six, you know, 10 millimeter yeah. size casings into an L frame. Uh, but it was a 40 Smith and Wesson with moon clips. And I think it was aimed at um, uh, the IDPA custom service revolver market. Right. And then IDPA changed the rules and, and it did its thing. Yeah, now, no. I don't know whether the L frame would be sturdy enough to handle 10 millimeter. You know, if it can handle 357 Magnum yeah. and they're doing them in six, seven and eight round cylinders, Yeah, you know, it's, it's got to be strong enough to handle a 10. Yeah. Because see, but, the, um, the 19 Smith revolver was the first of the 357s that yeah, Bill Jordan, this, this is the dream. This is what Smith needs to be making for every cop gun. And then the K-frames just did not hold up to steady diets at 357 Magnum. And so they built, beefed it up and got the uh the l frame that was where the 586 and the 686 and their fixed site counterparts the 581 and the 681 uh came from right i'm to the point where we've talked about it before is because i like that l frame better for what for what i want to be able to do with it i'm still toying with the idea of picking up an l frame 586 and then sending it off and have it ream so i can run 38 super through it because yeah. i have super or super comp with yeah. moon clips so then i wouldn't have to run 30 357 but i would have the size and frame size of the revolver i want yeah or because this is wish list smith and wesson make my damn revolver <laughs> Uh, when it comes to revolvers, I'm a K-frame guy. Give me a three-inch K-frame round butt. And I don't know why they ever made anything else. So maybe on the K-frame, but like on the on the L and definitely on the Ns. And I see it too. Like mm -hmm. they don't look right to me with a three-inch barrel because the frame and the cylinder is so big. And and where you see it is like the Colt Pythons. When you see like a three-inch Python. And you just see this massive cylinder and grip and this little three, it just doesn't balance right. But when you put a four inch on it, then it all flows and balances right. You know, it, you must have never shot a three inch 13 then. Well, so now I'm saying with the L yeah. frame. So yeah. if the K is that mid size, a little bit yeah. smaller, yeah. the smaller frames and the shorter barrels, yeah. you know, they, they look right. But yeah. it's, if you take that, like that, end frame mm -hmm. and you try like there's a couple of custom shop out there the yeah. performance centers where they're running 629s with three inch barrels yeah and i'm like it just it just yeah it doesn't look right you know it just well i have a research project for you okay you now have to go research jovino conversions no because <laughs> yes. i saw the same one on the forum you probably saw and i think i asked you about it yeah I had wow. like, I'm like, who is Jovino and what he's, what is he doing? And it turned out to be like some two inch, what, 1873 or something like that. Single uh, action army. Uh, I have a Jovino conversion 25.5 and 45 Colt. 
Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. And basically what he did was he took the longer barreled end frames and cut them down to like two and three quarter, two and a half, two and three yeah, quarter. Yeah, that's why I think and he made he, it super short. And then he reshaped the grip frame so that it's the same size grip frame as the K&L uh, L frame instead of the bigger end frame. I see, yeah, yeah, I saw the one for sale on the forum and I kind of yeah. looked at the pictures. And I was like, eh? You know, yeah. And I'd never heard of the guy, but once again, yeah. I am uh, I am nowhere nowhere familiar with uh with the revolver industry but i did watch uh ken hackathorn and uh bill wilson talk about his favorite revolvers mm-hmm. and that was an entertaining video but uh yeah. but yeah i wouldn't wouldn't mind you know if if that came out but yeah there you go there's my wish list that or the, my my 458 socom marlin i think the only one of those that has a realistic possibility is you buying an l-frame and having it change the 38 yeah, super i, I think that's probably. that's the only one that's realistic in that yeah, I uh, I can't say you're wrong on that. And that's more realistic <laughs> than me getting proper link socks on rifles. You know, that seems like an easy thing, right? You know, right. just short stock, spacers, you're doing it with rifles, just do it with a shotgun. Well, do it with rifles too, though. And it's just the thing. Like, oh, my God, I didn't tell you. Uh, okay. Okay, we have to, even if you have to all right, make this video long. So I have, I have a new project passion. Okay. Because we're not doing like the last three projects. <laughs> right. so, no, no, I, I, I'm starting to, some of my projects are starting to, to, to finish up. So I need new ones. I found that there's a company called Stevens that makes shotguns, mm-hmm. right? Well, they make over-unders. Mm-hmm. And I saw on a video, because, you know, late at night when it's two in the morning and you can't sleep and you're just scrolling through YouTube and then you come across these really obscure videos. Mm-hmm. of this guy who took a stevens 555 over under and he cut the barrels down to 18 and a half inches and then he cut the stock down to 12 it's totally legal right still overall length is like 33 inches so mm-hmm. it's not an sbr and sbs in any way right. but because on a over under there is no receiver Sure. So the barrels run right to the back. They're right to the back over the trigger guard. Mm-hmm. So even though they're still 18 and a half inch barrels, this gun is like this. It is the tiniest little thing. It's like a true like stagecoach, you know, riding shotgun thing. And I'm like, I must have one of those. Stoger produced them. Well, Stoger so here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. I have to check on Stoger specifically is I want the auto ejectors okay so on the stevens when you open it it yeah. kicks them out automatically and you know too yeah. so i'm like oh yes i need to do this and then i'll take the top send it off to briley have them cut it and re-choke it for the adjustable chokes cut the stock down to 12 inches like you said the proper length for a shotgun <laughs> this thing is going to be like this long it's going to be an over under and it's going to be a perfect snake gun <laughs> some number eights in that thing and just walk out and be like yes you know what i'll find it i'll send you the link of this of the guy that did it and it's just like like why have i not done this before (laughs) because you just don't realize how long shotgun receivers are right and the barrels and where they go well when you do an over under you have no receiver the base of the shotgun shell is over top of your trigger finger so when you cut the barrels that thing is super short. Yeah, I may have done an interstate extradition of a prisoner 
uh, toting a side by side that had been altered in much the similar manner oh, and stopping and stopping in uh, rest stops all along the interstate for him to go to the bathroom and him standing there using the bathroom with me with a double barrel shoved in his kidneys and uh see there needs to be a picture of that that needs there, to be on, there is that a, needs that, to be on a website somewhere there are pictures of that <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes he, that, beha he behaved know, himself so i took him for a walk to see the mississippi river you know a a picture suitable for framing would be perfect to go where those dishes are right now <laughs> there's a picture of me uh walking down the sidewalk with him at the rest stop at the vicksburg uh stop on i-20 when you come back over the mississippi river yep and we stopped there and he was behaving himself so i took him around to the to the the observation platform where you can watch the river go by and uh Sheriff Barry and I were doing that extradition and we were talking about the Battle of Vicksburg. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it and Gettysburg took place the same day. And Sheriff Barry mentioned that. And the inmate we were extraditing said, Is Gettysburg around here? And we're like, No, it's, <laughs> no. it's, it's not. You're not going to be able to see that one. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to the Gettysburg <laughs> battlefield. Uh, <laughs> man, well, uh, yeah, more good stuff. So, I'll, yeah, I'll send you the link for that video. It's just wildly entertaining. All right. Well, folks, if you have managed to stay this long with us, this is what uh, it's like in here. I should get started. Yes, yeah, yeah. this is this is what it's like on the on the telephone. Yeah. You know, or like when we talk, or well, this three is like, hours after a class is ended, we're yes. just sitting at the picnic table at the range. Yeah, so. yeah. So you get the nonsensical ramblings of us. So. There you go. Well, folks, your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.